to help you to remember where we were when we left off in the end of chapter 1 and then moving on to chapter 2. But we're just going to read chapter 2, verse 1, as far as our text is concerned this evening. So look with me, please, chapter 2, verse 1 of Ruth. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Now, seeing again, it's been several weeks since our last study together in the book of Ruth due to uh, me being unable to meet with you during that time, and due to the fact that we concluded our study of chapter 1 in our last study within our time together in Ruth. Tonight, I again want to provide for you, as I always do, an overview or a review, but yet maybe a little more extensively so that we can, uh, again, pick up where we left off as we begin chapter 2, verse 1. If you recall, we have already seen as Naomi turned back towards her home in the previous chapter and verses that she strongly urged both Orpah and Ruth to return to Moab. In verse 8, she said, go, return. Verse 11, she said, turn again, my daughters, why will you go with me? And then verse 12, she says again, turn again, my daughters, go your way. So while Naomi, we've discovered, was attempting to protect the future, the physical future of both Orpah and Ruth, her advice, as I reminded you a few weeks back, was solely based on her physical situation, absent of any spiritual consideration at all. And that becomes very clear within the text. While both, both Orpah and Ruth loved Naomi, no doubt, and desired to go with her as they both uh, demonstrated in their actions, they each responded differently in the end to Naomi's instruction. If you recall with me, Orpah did turn back. In chapter 1, 14 and 15 we read, And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her, and she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back, unto her people and unto her gods, return thou after thy sister-in-law. And I said a moment ago that Naomi's advice here to Orpah and Ruth, though it was genuinely, I believe, in concern for their physical well-being, it was totally void of any spiritual consideration because here Naomi is telling them to go back to their gods to go back to their pagan gods, to their heathen way of lifestyle, to go back to Moab, God's washpot, if you will, as the scripture references. And so we see that that, uh, Orpah had an affection for Naomi, as she demonstrated, but yet her actions revealed in the end that she lacked the same commitment to and for and love for Naomi as that which Ruth had possessed. And then we see that Ruth responded, of course, the scripture tells us that Ruth claved to Naomi, verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Ruth's love, which is to say her commitment was life-changing. Her commitment was that which, of course, gave her an entire new life, a new existence, as you see in the text. We saw weeks ago that God's work, God's love was behind the scenes working in Naomi and as well in Ruth in this entire situation, and God was drawing Ruth with Naomi back to the place of his blessing and provided 
Ruth accordingly with a new home, because Ruth had stated, of course, where thou goest, I will go, where thou lodgest, I will lodge. So Ruth here we see is turning from the land of spiritual darkness, that of Moab, to that of spiritual light, to God's blessing, where God is providing and God had provided for his people. Then also there was a new culture. When she says, thy people shall be my people, she is now rejecting her her home and her people that live there, her family and everyone else to go with Naomi and to embrace her people and her culture, her way of life. And in reality, what you see here is, of course, that Ruth was willing to forfeit her entire identity. She was willing to forsake her entire past to embrace this new identity with Naomi and her land with Naomi's people. But then also she was given a new God. She said, and thy God, my God. Ruth was determined to worship the one true God, and this is despite her background of the polytheistic ways and manners of her homeland. Remember, as we've already read this evening, that the scripture speaks of Naomi telling Orpah and Ruth to go back to their gods, plural, and and small g gods. And so it was a very polytheistic uh, culture, and they they were worshiping many gods or acknowledging many gods, false gods, of course, rather than acknowledging the one true God. And it's interesting, while Naomi and Ruth to go back to their gods, here Ruth says to Naomi, your God will be my God. Notice that's singular. She's not talking about many gods. She's rejecting her entire existence as it was in Moab and embracing this new way of life with Naomi and acknowledging the one true God. And in fact, to prove that even further, if you look with me, if you recall what she said, she says in verse 17, where thou diest, Well, she says first in the latter part of verse 16, thy God, my God. Then she says, verse 17, where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. So she's saying this is a lifelong commitment unto death. And then she says this, the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee in me. Notice again, she's acknowledging one singular deity here, not many gods, not these false gods, but she's acknowledging Naomi's God as being God, the God of heaven and earth. Then she also received through this a new future. This was a commitment that changed her entire life. She said, where thou diest, will I die, or will I be buried? Ruth was not going to simply, again, try a new life with Naomi, but she here demonstrates, exhibits an absolute commitment to Naomi and to follow after Naomi and to her homeland, Naomi's homeland, to Naomi's culture, to Naomi's people, and most importantly, to Naomi's God. And so she was completely committed to live and die in this new life with Naomi. Ruth's determination led to Naomi's concession also, as recorded in verses 18 and 19, if you look back with me again, in chapter 1. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she, Naomi, left speaking unto her, Ruth. So they two went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them, and they said, Is this Naomi? Now, I previously explained to you that the verb moved, used in this verse, means confused. These people were confused about this woman who returned, Naomi who returned. The confusion of the people was further emphasized by the question which the people then asked. Is this Naomi? They were asked, is this really Naomi? Now the name Naomi, as you recall, and we've said this many times through the study, it means pleasant, lovely, delightful, and friendly. And as she returned, there was confusion that was present among the people. Now first, this had been 10 plus years since she had left. And so... Ten years can do a lot to to someone, obviously, and especially one who is struggling or one who's gone through great grief and sorrow and heartache and difficulty. And so ten years takes its toll, no doubt. But at the same time, 
she is returning a different person in the sorrow and grief which she now has experienced as she goes on and expresses in the further passages. And so the name Naomi, meaning pleasant and lovely and delightful and friendly, yet this confusion existed when she returned because they were questioning as to whether or not this is the same Naomi who had left so many years prior. Could this possibly be the same woman? Verses 20 and 21. And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi. Call me not pleasant. Call me not delightful. Call me Mara. And that's bitter, of course. For the Almighty hath dealt bitterly with, very bitterly with me. And I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi? Seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. Now remember something. When the names are being used here, and Naomi says, why are you calling me Naomi? It's because the meaning of this name, and it's translated Naomi for us, of course, out of the Hebrew. But yet, the name, the meaning of the name is what is important here. Not the name itself, Naomi, the letters put together, as we would have it translated for us. But it's the meaning behind the name. And especially, you'll find through the Jewish culture, and Old Testament times, obviously, that names had significance. And they were not just, people were not randomly given names as it seems to be today. And they didn't have a, a book of baby names where you just picked one out that you liked and thought sounded good with your, with your uh, surname, if you will, right? No, this is where they actually had names and there was meaning behind the names. And so this, when she says, call me not Naomi, she's saying, do not call me pleasant. Do not call me delightful. And then she says, call me bitter because God has dealt very bitterly with me. And so the question that arises and the confusion that exists is due to the fact that she is claiming here the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. But again, as I mentioned, it's very interesting uh, how she approaches this, and so many do the same today as well. The name Mara, as I mentioned, means bitter or bitterness. And Naomi further explained why she instructed them or requested them to call her by the name Mara, which is bitterness, because she says, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Now, it's interesting, I mentioned this in our last study together, if you recall, it's been a couple of weeks now, but Naomi credited the Lord for her return. Look at verse 21 at the beginning of, at the, beginning of the verse. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. So she's crediting God for bringing her back. She's saying, now, there's both credit and blame here in a sense. But she's saying, the Lord's brought me home. It's, it's only by the grace of God at all that I've even made it back here but then she says in verse 21 further why then call ye me naomi seeing the lord had testified against me and the almighty hath afflicted me and the verb testified here means to reply or answer and the verb afflicted means to treat badly so she says the lord hath hath brought me home again but he brought me home empty i don't have my husband i do not have my sons all i have is ruth that is with me now she doesn't make that claim but that's obviously the truth so she returns with this daughter-in-law uh, who is now was the wife of one of her dead sons at this point. And she says, I, I've come back empty. The Lord's brought me home empty. Why would you call me pleasant, delightful when the Lord has answered against me and the Almighty hath afflicted me or he's treated me badly? That's interesting, again, because Naomi recognized that God was the one who was working all of this out in her life. She admits that here. She concedes to that truth. Yet she fails to see or to credit God's grace and God's mercy as part of that which was being demonstrated. While she says, okay, God brought me back here, but he's treated me badly. He's answered against me. He's testified against me because, of course, the sin that was present. But notice she does not say 
She, in fact, she said, I went out full and I've come back empty. Remember, she makes that statement. She didn't say, I went out full and yet in rebellion against God, we sinned and we turned from the Lord and did not follow in submission to him. No, I went out full. I had my family, my children, my husband, and here I'm coming back with nothing. Everything's been stripped of me. And the error of Naomi is this, that while she is acknowledging that God brought her back, she's saying he did so, treating her badly all the while, and she fails to acknowledge the grace of God. She fails to see that this is the mercy of God. It, it, it reminds me of how many may try to respond to chastening of the Lord in the life of those who are believers, that is, those who genuinely know the Lord. There are times whenever God chastens us, and it's obviously rightfully deserved, and God is teaching us and instructing us and correcting us and drawing us back to himself in, in close communion and fellowship. And when God is doing such a thing, it, is, it would behoove us to say, Lord, thank you for the grace that you are demonstrating, your goodness, and that you love and care for me in correcting me and bringing me back. Remember whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so the goodness of God that is drawing us, that is working in our lives, and it would behoove us also to acknowledge and admit the only reason that I am receiving chastening is because I have sinned, because I have rebelled, because I have turned from the Lord. So it is the goodness of God that is working and bringing us to himself. In Romans chapter 2, Paul mentions this concerning even uh, those who would have been the unbelieving Jew. And he says to them, that in Gentile alike for that matter, he says, Know you not that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? It's the grace of God. Goodness is grace. It's the grace of God that leads you to repentance. And so it is God's goodness by which we are turned. And Naomi fails to recognize God's grace or credit God's grace in this behalf, even though she knows it's true, no doubt, because she says the Lord brought me back, but he brought me empty, and he's treated me badly. So she's failing to submit herself in that with that understanding and thankfulness to God for his grace as it's being demonstrated. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. And again, God's grace and his kindness is evident in the timing of Naomi's return. Remember, Naomi heard that God had blessed the people in her homeland. Remember that? How did she hear that? There was no social media. There were no newspapers. There were no news broadcasts. But God determined to make certain that Naomi had heard of his blessing back in the homeland, and God sustained her and brought her back at this specific time during the barley harvest, a time where there was great provision. He was visiting his people, the scripture says. So tonight we begin our study in verse 1 of chapter 2 as we've read. And within this first verse of chapter 2, we are introduced to a new character, of course, that being Boaz. Now while this is the first mention of Boaz, he is the most important character, in a sense, within the entire narrative of the book of Ruth, considering his role as the one who would redeem Ruth. He is the near kinsman redeemer. Verse 1 says, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. The initial introduction of Boaz is actually quite impressive. However, the most important truth about Boaz is not the description provided about him, though that is important, nor is it even his role as the one who would redeem Ruth in reality. But the most important truth concerning Boaz, I think, or the greatest appreciation we should have, 
concerning Boaz. It's his direct relation to the lineage of the true Redeemer, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Ruth concludes with this genealogy, chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, the final verses of the, of the book. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. So you have the direct tie and link through genealogy made even before Boaz, but to David, the king. And of course, we know uh, that that extends further to help us to see the truth of the relationship of Boaz in the genealogy of Christ. In Matthew's gospel, we are told in Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and then 16 and 17. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah, or Uriah. Verses 16 and 17. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David unto the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. So in Ruth, the genealogy provided for us in Ruth shows the connection of Boaz and Ruth to David, and then we find in Matthew's gospel, we see that mentioned again of Boaz and Ruth, Obed and Jesse, David, and then the connection between David and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the genealogies here are, of course, of tremendous significance. And remember, obviously for the Jews, the genealogies were very important from a historical aspect, that the records were being kept and the genealogies were being kept. And you find throughout Scripture that genealogies are very interesting. And um, not every time is every name mentioned of every individual through the lineage, but you'll find that they're often, uh, while there may be generations skipped or so, that they will find key individuals that are mentioned by name and showing the connection and link throughout the genealogies or throughout the, the time of, in history that connect the people together uh, with those of importance that are being spoken, of which are being spoken. And so here we find again, that in Ruth 4, 18 through 20, Matthew 1, 5 through 6, and 16 and 17, you see the connections that are made. Now, the fact that God providentially included Boaz and Ruth in the lineage of the one true Redeemer is, of course, no small matter. Within chapter 5, we're told that Boaz was the son of Rechab, or Rahab, and Boaz married Ruth, who birthed Obed, the grandfather of David, king of Israel. And then verses 16 and 17, again, connect this questionable genealogy made up of two generations of Gentiles, apparently, to Christ. Now, it's debatable as to whom the, who the Rahab mentioned in Matthew 1 is. Some believe, of course, this to be Rahab of Joshua, of the book of Joshua, that is. While others argue to the timeline in which this could be possible. In any case, the point being made here is really not about Rahab as much as it is about, uh, in both Ruth and Matthew, is that Ruth the Moabitess is in the family of Christ. And we see that that's what's being emphasized here in, in this account. Now, verse 1, we read, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's. Now, interestingly enough, and we'll see where this is clarified for us, but the noun kinsman that is used here, it literally speaks of one who was an acquaintance. So the name, or the word kinsman, the noun kinsman could be used in a way that was not necessarily tied in a family relationship, necessarily. It does not essentially mean that there are familial ties. 
However, in the following statement in verse 1, as further supported in verse 3, we are provided clarity as to the familial relationship between Naomi and Boaz. In verse 1, it says, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech. And then in verse 3, and she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Now, what's interesting about the noun family and kindred, used family in verse 1 and kindred in verse 3, is that this is the same Hebrew word. And the meaning of the word is extended family or clan. And from this definition, we understand that Boaz was of Elimelech's clan or part of his extended family. And so he was a kinsman. He was part of the family of Elimelech. Now, that obviously means that he would be, if you will, an in-law to some degree to Naomi, but yet he was a Limelech's family. In verse 1, it goes on to say, a mighty man of wealth. This statement made of Boaz is a summarized definition of the man. Think of it like this for a moment. Of all that could be said about, Mo- about Boaz, these five words are the testimony of the scriptures concerning him at the time of his introduction. A mighty man of wealth. Having said that, the question then must be asked, what does this statement actually mean? What is a mighty man of wealth as it is defined within this text? The term mighty man, it means manly and vigorous. It's hero or champion. And the mention of wealth is one which is referring to faculty, to power, to strength, competence, brave, landowner, army, upper class. So it has a broad range of definitions concerning wealth. And as we see demonstrated through the interactions throughout this book of Boaz with Ruth as they interacted together, this term mighty man of wealth, although it no doubt included monetary value because he is a landowner. He is a man who has fields. He is a man when people are gleaning and working on his behalf and reaping him benefits while they themselves reap benefit. And so he is a businessman. He is a a man who's respected, obviously, within that uh, realm of of upper class, if you will, within that realm of those who would be uh, uh, the wealthy in a monetary, from a monetary viewpoint or aspect. However, it is much more, this statement, mighty man of wealth, is much more than a statement of Boaz's monetary value alone. This descriptive language concerning Boaz is a testimony to his character. As I previously mentioned, throughout his interactions with Ruth, as you see and most of you are familiar, Boaz demonstrates grace and as well heroic behavior. Boaz is the one who tells those who are gleaning his field to leave handfuls of purpose, to leave behind so that this Moabite, this woman from Moab, that she might be able to glean and to gather not only scraps enough just to survive, but that she might gather together an abundance of that of his field. He acts in a very heroic manner towards her and yes of course he is interested in her very obvious and in the end we know that they are wed and married and have children or have obed 
So we understand that, that there was a purpose behind all that Boaz was doing, but Boaz was acting in grace and in kindness, and he was showing favor to this stranger who had no This mighty man of wealth is not someone who is simply lording over others and using others in a manner just to profit himself, but he is demonstrating grace and care for others at his own expense. As we consider the parallels between Boaz, Ruth's Redeemer, and Christ, the true Redeemer, we see in Boaz, of course, a man of great means. There's no doubt that Boaz had wealth monetarily. He was a man of, he owned land, property, and that, of course, was of tremendous value. And so he's a man who had a status as far as his wealth physically was concerned, monetarily. So he had means. He was not someone who was struggling himself. But what's more than that is that he was wealthy in character. He was a man who showed grace when he didn't have to. And by the way, that's what grace is, isn't it? He's a man who showed favor to one who didn't deserve to be favored. He was a man who was caring for those who could not care for themselves at his own expense. And as great as that may be and as wonderful as that may be and was, of course, and especially to Ruth and Naomi because here they are dependent on Ruth being able to glean from a field, on Ruth being able to get the scraps to survive. In Christ, there is immeasurable wealth and an incomparable character. Boaz was a man of means. And Boaz sacrificed, if you will, at his own expense for the sake of Ruth. And that's not, it's not limited to her gleaning in a field. You'll find further in the account, of course, where the near kinsman, not Boaz, but the other, that he says, I'm not able to redeem her. Basically, he says, it's going to cost me too much. I'm not willing to do this. I cannot do this. It's going to, it's going to ruin me to do this. Yet Boaz says, I'll do it. I will pay the cost to redeem this woman from Moab. So he gives selflessly, sacrificially. But with Christ, there is an immeasurable wealth. Speaking of someone with means, remember, he set his glory aside that he might humble himself. And though Jesus, again, though Jesus was not limited by his flesh, he did limit himself to his flesh. Now you see him act miraculously. You see him walking on water. You see him walking through the crowd. You see him uh, performing miracles, things that a man could not physically do on his own, of his own power and ability. But yet you also see Jesus is never in more than one place at one time. He limits himself to his flesh, but was not limited by his flesh. He was able to do that, which was the will of the Father, despite it being impossible physically speaking. But he limited himself to his own flesh. And in doing so, he was humbling himself and he becoming the greatest servant. So he is the master. Is that really, isn't that exactly what Boaz was doing for Ruth in reality? He's the master. He's the Lord. 
He's the landowner. He's the one who's wealthy. And yet, what does he do? He serves Ruth. And while Ruth is not even really aware necessarily of what is happening, notice this. Boaz was making provision for her all the while. And Naomi. And she was benefiting from this grace, though she was doing it ignorantly, not understanding all that was taking place in the background. The grace of God is such in our lives, is it not in Christ? Even before we were redeemed, we can look back and see where God was graciously, mercifully working and where he was providing and making provision that we were benefiting from and taking of him in this provision, not even understanding what really was happening all the while. But now on this side, now here we are, as those who've been redeemed, those who've been born again, and now we can see how grace was working and how the very love of God was personified in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest provision that could be made on our behalf. For there is none to compare to Christ, our Redeemer, and there is nothing to compare to His mercy and His grace. And as we consider Boaz and Ruth again, we consider all that's taking place in this account, we are reminded that this is not only a representation of redemption in Jesus Christ, but let me continue to remind you of this all-important truth. It is Boaz and Ruth who God has made to be a part of the manifestation and demonstration of of His eternal redemptive plan in Christ. For it is through their lineage that Jesus is born. Boaz demonstrates great character as a mighty man of wealth, not just mighty in money or in monetary means, but a hero, a champion of grace and character. And if you don't believe that, just ask Ruth. She'll tell you. Others may not confess or, or, or speak of Boaz in such a way in that manner, but I can tell you one who surely would, and that would be Ruth. And might I say to you, while many do not see Jesus to be beautiful and wonderful as he is, just ask one whom he's redeemed. And you'll find out quickly that he is all that and so much more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open the word of God.